Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Hi, Bob Lendon. Uh, this is the forum at the Harvard School of Public Health. And it's an incredible privilege to have Governor Patrick with us today. Uh, for the governor's benefit, I want to just say a few uh, broad remarks. Uh, our community consists of a thousand students from all over the globe and 200 faculty who are unbelievably mission oriented in terms of improving health and people's lives. So having you here today is of incredible symbolic value uh, to people here. It means a great deal uh, for what we're about. Uh, for those of you and uh, the audience is here, but actually this is being webcast all over the Commonwealth, all over the university uh, for this. So let me say a couple remarks about the governor. First is, if you're not from Massachusetts, you do not realize that we just came through one of the most difficult economic periods in the history of this state. Uh, and uh, being governor always has its problems, but being governor facing the kinds of challenges, people suffering and hurt and businesses closing uh, that we had to, and the governor led us through these years and we'll leave him later to talk about the changes that are actually occurring in the economic situation in Massachusetts. But if you look at his record, and you have to make choices in these times, and they're difficult choices, what did he do? He prioritized trying to get jobs back and growing in the state. He prioritized trying to keep public education, which is the future of this state, improving. He prioritized investing in science infrastructure, particularly the biosciences. And the reason he's here today is he prioritized taking the country's first universal law and putting it in a place and making it work. Uh, for most of you who are from the state, you know this is the fifth year anniversary. If you are not from this state, you can pick up a commentator any place across this country and learn how the bill has failed. People are not getting care. Uh, the state is about to repeal it. Uh, people are not seeing doctors. If you live in this state, you discover that 98% of people have an insurance policy. According to the most recent Boston Globe poll, most people support the bill. Uh, few people have thought of repealing it. Uh, and the purpose of the governor's talk today is the anxieties have to do about the long-term financial viability uh, uh, for this. But that's only if you are in this state. Uh, otherwise, you are reading something today uh, and you would expect the governor to not be smiling and it would be a very different discussion, which shows how important these issues are in, in today's America. Uh, before I turn it over to the governor, I feel a need for the university community to say something more personal. And so, if you are a professor or governor at this university, and you teach for years, and you counsel people, and you advise your dream, in my world as a professor, is that your students grow up and they change the stream of history. And the governor is a graduate of our college, he is a graduate of our law school. I think most of us will agree that he changed part of the stream of history. And there is an enormous pride if you are a faculty member in this uh, university uh, about this. Uh, the governor's written a book um, uh, about uh, uh, believing in the future and about how his career in probable put him into opportunities that allow him to make changes. But I want to say in behalf of the whole university community, you're doing what you did in Massachusetts has made this university a very different place. And we are incredibly grateful 
for all the faculty that have been involved uh, with your life and in lives of others that you went on and did what you did. Most of you know he left, became a, uh, a, a, a clerk to a federal judge, a very distinguished private legal practice, became assistant attorney general uh, to Bill Clinton in a period when it was very crucial in the area of civil rights. Uh, uh, for that, returned to run uh, uh, for governor and for this community here, took on the implementation in a very different economic period uh, of this bill. This is the uh, fifth year anniversary, and to borrow a phrase from Winston Churchill, the fifth year anniversary basically marks the end of the beginning. And it's time for chapter two, and that is what the governor is going to talk about uh, with us today. Uh, after we take a break, after the governor, we have a very distinguished panel chaired by uh, uh, Professor John McDonough that's going to look at the future issues facing this state uh, as we go into chapter two of where we are. Uh, I, I have to close because my focus tends to be on this issue uh, nationally. Uh, if Massachusetts, with the governor's leadership, cannot face these issues, this country will never face it. Uh, this legislation and this state has become the beacon, not only for the controversy, but for the future of where this country goes. It is a privilege for the Harvard faculty and students in the School of Public Health, Governor, to have you here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Blendon, first of all, thank you for your extraordinarily generous introduction. I, uh, I, am, I hope to become the man you described. <laughs> I want to thank you all for participating in the discussion, I hope, and encourage you to stay for the discussion with the panel, many of whom were part of the framing uh, and, uh, and inventing of healthcare reform here. Uh, in Massachusetts and who continue to be uh, indispensable in shaping it and refining it as we, go, as we go forward. And I thank all of you for that work and for participating in this discussion today. And I'm glad you're all here because we have a great big challenge in front of us. It's not my challenge, by the way. Uh, it's not just government's challenge. It's our challenge as a community, as a society. And so I'm glad to be here, but I'm especially glad that all of you are here today. The challenge before us today concerns the escalating cost of health care. And just as we have shown the nation how to expand coverage to everyone, I really believe Massachusetts is going to be the place where we will crack the code on cost containment. It won't be easy, but promise you, it will be done. It will be done. So let me spend a few minutes at the outset to offer my views on where we are, where we're going, and how I believe we're going to get there. First of all, where are we? Well, as uh, Dr. Blendon said, we lead the nation in health care coverage for our residents. 98% of our residents have health insurance today. 99.8% of children. No other state in America can touch that. You ought to be proud of that. That's an enormously important uh, accomplishment for all of us. More people than ever get their care in lower cost primary care settings. Workers and their families no longer have to worry about a catastrophic illness forcing them into bankruptcy or being denied coverage because they're already sick. The percent of private companies offering health insurance to their employees is up from 70% before the bill was enacted to 76% today. That's compared to only about 60% nationally. Healthcare reform in Massachusetts is doing exactly what it was designed to do, expanding access to quality care to all of our residents. The, the 2006 healthcare reform uh, is something of which I think we can all be proud, and we should all be proud. In addition to being a successful piece of legislation and an, uh, and an important program, it's an expression of shared values. And that's important to bear in mind. Our belief that health is a public good and that each of us deserves access to good quality care. We've been able to expand access without breaking the bank. 
by the way. With 98% of our residents covered, it has increased our costs by about 1% of state spending. 1% of state spending. In the current fiscal year, we spent nearly $300 million less on health care for the un- and underinsured than we did before health reform was passed. Both the Bush and the Obama administrations have allowed considerable flexibility under Medicaid, which has helped enormously, and we're working with the Obama administration to get similar flexibility on the Medicare side of the ledger. Overall, Medicaid represents 32% of annual spending today and has grown about 2% per capita since the reform was put into effect. The problem is rising insurance premiums. Health uh, care premiums increase at an unsustainable rate, and you all know that. You know that from your own lives, you know that from your own families, you know that from what you read uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the media and see and hear in the media. Having insurance premiums rise sharply year after year, even during the recession, is a national problem. It's not happening on account of health care reform. Some of the conservative commentators want you, believe, want you to believe that it is happening because of our health care reform, but they're wrong. Premiums are, have increased across the nation on average 130% over the last decade. A low-cost state like Mississippi, which has not moved to expand coverage as we have here, is still experiencing premium increases projected to be at about 114% over that same period. As a result, across the nation, just like across the Commonwealth, working families, small governments, local government, uh, small businesses are being squeezed by cost increases that have been out of control. In state government alone, between MassHealth, uh, subsidized programs in the connector and health insurance for our own employees, the cost of health care represents nearly 40% of the state budget when you add all of those different programs in together. Statewide, the health care burden for local governments is 14% of spending and growing. When these costs escalate, it squeezes out all kinds of other public services in education, in public safety, and a whole host of other worthy services. So let me be clear. While uh, state employees uh, pay today a fair share for their health insurance, comparable now, by the way, to what employees in the private sector are paying, and we are working with municipalities and their unions to rebalance that on the municipal side. This challenge is not going to be met by cost shifting. That whole debate is about who pays what share. That's a fair debate. But we're not going to solve the issue of escalating premium costs by just shifting the burden around. We have to get uh, at what's underneath it. Businesses are facing similar challenges especially small businesses. I meet many small business owners who are beginning to see their commercial activity pick up. I know uh, many of you do as well. Chris, you must see this in your, uh, in your work uh, and are ready to start hiring again until they get that bill from their health insurance company saying that their premium is going up by double digits again. Uh, and then they scramble to find new carriers with less, less coverage at the same price or the same coverage with higher deductibles in an annual ring around the rosy of shifting plans. I have yet to meet a small business owner who doesn't see health care costs as a major roadblock to adding jobs. This ought to be an urgent concern for all of us because small businesses represent 85% of the businesses here in the Commonwealth. If they don't start hiring, we don't get a recovery. It's as simple as that. So where do we need to go? Well, the good news, as we were saying uh, in conversation just before coming out, is that I see, and I think many others do, an emerging consensus about solutions. By most accounts, higher quality care, meaning well-integrated, what I describe sometimes as whole person care, equates to lower costs. But today, we don't pay for managing chronic medical problems or monitoring the taking of medications or the physical therapy that would prevent more serious treatment uh, or a hospital readmission. Instead of the fragmented fee-for-service system we have today, we ought to pay for integrated care. Paying for that kind of care will encourage different kinds of behaviors in the delivery of care. With the added benefit of restraining cost increases, 
to about the rate of GDP growth. The plan that we have proposed give do gives doctors, other medical professionals, hospitals and insurers some new tools and latitude to innovate costs down. We want to see more integrated care organizations and alternative pa payment methodologies that reward care that emphasizes the wellness of the patient. The medical community is already trying a number of ways to move in this direction. I want to mention just a few. Blue Cross Blue Shield has developed a version of outcome-based reimbursement that they call the alternative quality contract. Lowell General's Physician Hospital Organization is pioneering an alternative payment method. Atrius Health is an example of a successful accountable care organization here in the Commonwealth. There are doctors in Springfield working in integrated care settings in patient-centered medical homes. Our remarkable network of community health centers has long been a model of preventive care in lower cost settings. There are many, many good things happening in the market right now, but we need scale. We need a set of common expectations and standards, and we need the savings to be passed on to the premium payers, not just used as a way to improve the margins of the companies who are providing the service. That's what our legislation will do. So bringing working solutions to scale, setting standards, and meeting expectations and getting the savings down to the premium pay payers. That is where we are going and we need to get there quickly. Now, how are we going to get there? The short answer is with your help. You may have thought you were coming just to listen to some talking heads today, but you are all about to be put to work and some of you have been working on this hard already. I've heard so much of this conversation for so long now. I hear some people say our bill doesn't go far enough. There are other people who say the bill goes too far. Uh, let me tell you something, I'm a capitalist, having spent most of my life in the private sector, but I am not a market fundamentalist. I don't think the market always gets it just right. And I don't think the market has got it right when it comes to health insurance premiums. We are going to have to solve this problem of healthcare cost by all of us, private and public, working together. And we have got to stop being defeated by the complexity of the issue. Because while we fret over how complex all the solutions are, there are small businesses and working families and cities and towns drowning under unsustainable premium increases. And all of you here know that. So as we go forward, bear in mind two of what I think are the more profound lessons from the first round of health care reform five years ago. First. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. One of the phenomenal accomplishments of the first round of healthcare reform is that we stopped limiting ourselves to the same old two choices between a perfect solution and no solution at all. Instead, what we did was come together and try something, and we moved, and it worked. Second, stick together with us, and with each other. For years before the 2006 legislation, folks said that health reform would never happen. John didn't say it, but a whole lot of other people did. <laughs> and for years it didn't happen. It took a broad coalition of business, labor, and healthcare leaders, patient advocates, policymakers, working with a Democratic legislature, a Republican governor, a Democratic United States Senator, a Republican White House uh, to get it done. They didn't get distracted by drama or overheated rhetoric. And not only did they come together to pass the bill, but they stuck together to implement and refine it as we went along. That, I think, has got to be the model for what we're doing now. And the session that we're having today is like sessions we're having all around the Commonwealth to encourage and remind people that that model of cooperation and collaboration is indispensable to moving us forward on phase two of healthcare reform. The details may be complicated, but our goals and our values are simple, even universal. Better, more affordable care for all of us. Now lastly, and uh, I say this mindful that the healthcare industry is represented by some of you here and uh, that they may be watching on the broadcast and that they parse everything I say with a fine-tooth comb, 
the way the Greeks used to read the entrails. Um, I want to leave no doubt about this. We are moving. This is going to happen. And we need everyone to contribute to getting as good a solution as we can. But we are not going to accept any longer being victimized by premium increases that, as I say, are drowning small businesses and working families. We have got to move forward. We're not going to let inertia stand in the way of the relief that we need for each other. We have already used the regulatory authority of the insurance commissioner and new tools in last summer's economic development legislation to curb premium increases, but our communities and our neighbors need us to do more. And we have all of us got to deliver. Just as in the first round of health care reform, this is about what kind of commonwealth we want to live in. If we want a better, stronger commonwealth for ourselves and for a generation to come, we need to work together to get this right. And I look forward to working with all of you to do just that. Thank you so much again, Dr. Blendon, for having me today. And I'm happy uh, to start the conversation. Great. The governor will take questions, and we will move a mic around. Do we need a mic for this, or can we? You can ask anything, because it turns out that all the folks with the answers are sitting right over here and here. So this is all good. Yeah. Sure. Do you need a mic first, or? OK. I've heard it said that we can't solve the health care cost problem in this country without dealing with the system of food and agriculture and its role in uh, creating obesity. How would you evaluate that statement? What's your name? Josh. Josh, um, you're probably right. John would, I know, would say that's right. You know, the, one of the, there's a, can I step back and, 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 and offer an observation on how I approach this? I think a lot of times we come at issues, and healthcare may be one where it's particularly, I think, problematic to do so, but where we come at issues as if they're one-offs instead of realizing they're connected. And uh, uh, the, so when I think about, um, about healthcare costs and wellness, I think it is not quite complete to think just about um, how we deliver what is in effect today sick care but how we think about wellness in, in communities. And that goes to issues of, uh, of, uh, of exercise, and childhood obesity, and, and nutrition. Goes to issues of violence. Um, goes to issues of poverty, which is the one thing nobody is willing to talk about today, but is underneath so many of our social problems. Poverty. Poverty. So how do we lift people up? How do we give people ways forward. I don't think, by the way, that's all about government. You know, I'm a Democrat. I believe government has a role to play, but I don't think government can or should undertake to solve every problem in everybody's life. But part of what we have to be about here is, as you know, multifaceted as these challenges uh, are, um, is using all kinds of leadership, not just elected uh, leadership, but academic and, uh, and advocacy leadership, neighborhood and community uh, leadership to come at all of these issues simultaneously. But John, you probably, I mean, John is our commissioner of public health. Um, is, aren't you a graduate of, no, you didn't go here? <laughs> okay. He's good anyway. <laughs> Do you want to say more about, about this? I mean, Perhaps in the panel. In the panel? So Josh, stick for the panel, and we'll, they can get integrated in detail. Anybody else? Yeah, down here. Anybody up? I can't see through the lights, but I don't want to leave out the gallery. Or are you up there because you don't want to be called on? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Hi, my name is Monica. Monica? I was wondering, what are the opportunities for multidisciplinary collaboration in terms of healthcare reform for the future? Mm. Did everyone get the question? Let me just uh, paraphrase it for those who, who didn't. The opportunities for multi, multidisciplinary collaboration for healthcare reform in the future. So let me just uh, repeat a point I was making here first as a threshold in my um, prepared remarks. 
it was multi, the healthcare reform one was multidisciplinary, right? I mean, a lot of the framers are here. I, I think this is fair to say, right? We had, uh, we had teachers and preachers and policymakers and business people and, um, and organized. Like, we had a bunch of people working on this who don't talk to each other normally. Um, but it was, it was a beautiful thing how they came together to invent this thing and then stuck together to refine it as we've gone along. And I think that we're going to need that um, for round two. So I will say that in the Payment Reform Commission, we had a bunch of folks from all kinds of different disciplines. This is the group that, uh, whose unanimous recommendations led to the bill that I was describing here about how to move to a different delivery uh, system. But to Josh, right? To Josh's point, what I, I'm going to hear your question, Monica, as a build on Josh's point, that there is more that I think we can do and should, uh, should do beyond the question of how we pay for health care, but how we bring these different perspectives and solutions into the, to the wellness um, issue. My term, but I think I'm hearing, is that, a, is that a fair way to describe what you're getting at? So the answer is we have more to do and come and help. One, two, three, they loosened up. Good, you, okay. You got the, uh, the so one, two, three. She has the mic already, all right? Okay. Uh, Miranda Daniloff Mancusi, I'm uh, on the forum staff here, but actually one of the features um, of this program is that we have um, online questions. So I'm going to ask a question from Someone an online Someone tweeted viewer. a, uh, Somebody uh, has on the, on the iPhone here, and this, this comes. They're right up there too, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know. This is uh, Melissa French uh, from the University of Liverpool, Master of Public Health Program. I don't know if that's Liverpool, England, but it, it could be. Um, I am interested to hear your framework and intervention design methods that led to the approval of the Massachusetts health policy reform. Would you suggest this approach for lower income states or areas? Mm. Melissa? Uh, that is Melissa. Melissa. Yes. So what time is it there? <laughs> So, do I look into the camera to answer? So, Melissa, um, hello from Boston. I, w I think I hear the question to be, look at this camera, I'm sorry. Okay, thank you for the stage direction. Sorry, Melissa. Um, the question I, I, I think is, is this an approach that would work in a state um, that uh, was not as wealthy as our, as our state? Is that, do you think, a fair... Uh, well, this is, this, our, our reform is the model for national health care uh, reform. I'm proud of that, and I think it can work uh, and will work uh, nationally. I think we had some advantages, and John, help me. There are a couple that I, I, I sense we had. One is, compared to many states, we started off with a relatively small uninsured population, right? So we were maybe 500,000 uh, uninsured on a, on a population of six and a half million. I think California might have a third of the population uninsured, 25%. So a bigger lift for some of them. They're quite a wealthy state, but in terms of the number, the proportion of, of uh, the population without uh, insurance, again, mindful that our solution has been insurance. I understand there's a, there's a debate out there uh, about doing this other way, single payer. You know, the thing that uh, um, lots of people in public life are, the words, you know, it's like, uh, it which shall not be named. Um, but, uh, but we have chosen a public-private model here. It's been an insurance-based uh, uh, model, and our proportion of those uninsured compared to many other states, not all other states, was relatively small. That was an uh, advantage. We had um, a large fund um, for uncompensated care, uh, which is, uh, again, an expression of the values of the, of the Commonwealth, but we decided, we paid for health care for all in part by using that fund for uncompensated care to buy insurance. I, am I saying this right? Yeah, okay. So those are two advantages not every state uh, has. I will say that the uh, Affordable Care Act attempts to accommodate those uh, concerns. Um, it's interesting to me to listen to uh, my counterparts in the states that uh, have not made these kinds of values choices uh, in the past, and they're very worried about 
their Medicaid budgets, um, but they get 100% reimbursement from the federal government. I would like to have 100% reimbursement. 100% reimbursement for the federal, from the federal government through the years of, uh, of implementation. That is, that is on purpose to enable uh, states that have a bigger delta they have to uh, uh, close to be able to feather it in uh, and, uh, and make, it, uh, make it work. So I think it can work and I think it will. And again, just to repeat the point, Anybody who believes that all that is necessary is for us to pass a bill and then step back and let it you know, work on autopilot is mistaken. Healthcare is not like that. We have to stick with it and keep, and I actually think that that's been the lesson of Medicare and Medicaid and, um, and, and S-CHIP as well, right? So short answer is yes, it can work. Yes. I'm Dr. Lawrence Cohn. I'm a cardiac surgeon from a nearby community hospital called the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Yes, here. indeed. I, I feel fine. Thank you. You, you, you look great, but you never know. Um, <laughs> I just want to take no, my chair now. Don't, no, you look terrific. Uh, I enjoyed your talk very much, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. We've got to do something about the cost. But the one thing I, I appreciated, or maybe didn't appreciate, from the Obamacare it didn't seem to bring in the, all the doctors that really cost the medical system a lot of money, like cardiac surgeons and surgeons and orthopedists. Are you planning in your next chapter to bring in, say, the Mass College, American College of Cardiology, or the, uh, the Massachusetts uh, surgeons, or the Massachusetts orthopedists? Because I just get a sense that these people could really help out if they just yeah. were at the table with you. It's a, such a great the, point. Dr. And the administrators Thanks. to say, hey, you know, we got a problem, but if we do this and this, maybe we could really save a lot of money. And I just have a hunch that that would be really a good thing to do to get more buy-in to that program. I thank you for the, for the point, doctor. We have had um, the Massachusetts Medical society um, at the table and I have personally and they've been a part of the working group I have personally met with um, uh, specialty um, I want to call them trade group professional uh, groups as well um, the radiologists you know interestingly the the um, um, who are the folks who do the adjustments the the chiropractors um, who uh, have been very uh, I'm sorry this is recorded, I forgot. <laughs> they have, uh, they, all kinds of folks have, who are in the business of, uh, or in the field of treat, treating patients, have great ideas about how to get, uh, how to capture savings. There's a um, pilot that's been going on a couple years over at MGH. I, I can't remember whether, the Brigham is doing it as well, but uh, at, at MGH around uh, hospital readmissions, which apparently is a big cost driver. And, um, uh, and so, I don't know how many years ago, ago uh, this started, but not very long ago, MGH and, and CMS started a conversation about how to get Medicare costs down by um, avoiding readmissions, preventing readmissions. And uh, somebody had the observation, well, you know, to do the stuff, you know, after you take good care of those patients and they're sent home, they're, uh, you know, taking their meds and um, uh, doing whatever physical therapy is required and so on. That, that business of making sure they do that, none of that stuff is reimbursed. Um, and it's not that uh, the hospital doesn't realize it's important to do, but none of it's reimbursed. And um, so they worked out something with uh, CMS to do a pilot um, to um, uh, fund. They had to put. It, they had to invest in some infrastructure to make sure that that follow-on work and the monitoring, what have you, uh, was done. And they cut a deal with CMS to split the savings, and they get some ridiculous large savings. Now, where did that come from? It came from the medical profession saying, "We know what to do around wellness." But it's hard for us to do that if all that we are, that, that is paid attention to from the insurer or reimbursement uh, point of view is those 15 minutes, 15 minute co consultations. So I think, I think what you're saying, I, you know, 
it's hard to legislate that, doctor. Um, it's hard to capture all that in the, uh, in the bill. Um, what we're trying to do in the bill is to create frameworks where the people in the know and with the experience have to come together um, to make the fixes as we go along. Okay, who was number three? Yeah. You were actually number two, but Melissa uh, jumped you. I'll take bronze. That's fine. Uh, so, Governor Patrick, thank you for being here today. Thank My name you. is Mike. Uh, one of the questions that I have for you is sort of based over the last couple of weeks, I've had a chance to take a look at your cost control proposal and your proposed budget actually for 2012. Mm -hmm. And for both of them, in terms of what they have to do for healthcare, they both obviously have a focus in terms of coordinated care and primary care as a sort of cost saving driver. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that's interesting to me about that is that the state of Massachusetts historically is relatively restrictive in terms of the role that nurses and nurse practitioners can yes, have in terms yes, of yes. delivering primary care. And your cost control proposal does envision sort of a larger role for them in the sort of the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that's the kind of thing that can happen under the current structure of the law here, or is that an area you think of as being an area for subsequent reforms in terms of what they're able to do? Well, it's not, Mike, it's not all going to happen in this bill, um, but it has to happen. You know, the, the, uh, the role of, um, uh, you know, nurse practitioners, for example, um, in, uh, in helping to coordinate uh, uh, care. The, the centrality of primary care physicians, no offense, doctor, but the, um, or the primacy. This is one of the things we hear all the time about. You can imagine in the debates around the table, folks saying, well, you know, the, the only folks who have any stroke are, uh, are, the, are the specialists, but we're, this has got to be more about primary care, so how come the primary care Physicians don't have a more central role. You know who's got this model nailed, I think, is the community care uh, centers. The, uh, um, you know, that you go out to visit Mattapan Community Health Center or, um, uh, um, I mean, pick one. Um, what's the one around the corner? Dimmick? What's the one right around the corner? The Whittier Street? They've got this, they, they get this idea of all hands on deck and everybody doing what they can with limited resources in order to, to care for the, um, uh, for the patient. And the, um, uh, the flexibility or fluidity with which those professionals share within their, you know, within their zones of, uh, of, uh, of licensure and what have you, but uh, the flexibility is a, is a thing to behold and it's a very high quality care in a low cost setting. Now, we have stuff here in Massachusetts, like the, the foot doctor can't treat above the ankle or to the ankle. I'm not kidding. Um, or the, uh, you know, this one can't go into, can't tread into that space for these sorts of things. All that stuff's got to be on the table. I'm not saying that they don't have their reasoned and historical um, uh, bases, but I'm, but I'm saying we have to be willing to think afresh about some of those, uh, uh, some of those lines. I'll give you one current example and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop. Um, that relates a little bit. You remember the minute clinics? Remember we got into this uh, with the, uh, when I think was it CVS first of all that wanted to do the minute clinics? Um, where you could get a flu shot or um, uh, kind of a more routine kind of uh, uh, care or response in a pharmacy. Oh my gracious, the first reaction to that was the sky was going to fall and it would be the end of civilization as we, as we know it. But the, but the consumer wants convenience and wants, I mean, they want to be safe. Um, so don't ask me to give the shot. But, um, but um, you know, within some uh, parameters, bless you, we, we, have to, we have to be willing to talk about this stuff and, uh, and work it out as we go, and I think, I think uh, that the uh, environment uh, for health reform too um, will naturally lead to a lot of those questions being posed and I hope uh, resolved, so I'm hopeful. Hi, Governor Patrick, thanks for being here. Um, my name's Colleen. Colleen. So as Professor Blendon mentioned in his opening remarks, there, despite successes that we've had in achieving near universal coverage in Massachusetts, there's still a lot of criticism around the nation. Um, and so in, with an eye towards becoming a model in cost containment, can you speak to strategies in terms of communicating successes that we're 
bound to have here in Massachusetts? Well, that, what a great question, you know, because some, some of the criticism um, seems to reflect that kind of phenomenon of the times that people think they're entitled not just to their own opinion but to their own set of facts. Um, it is a, um, it's a fact that 98% of our residents have health insurance. You know, it's a fact that 99.8% .8 of, uh, of our young people, uh, of our children, have, uh, have ha uh, health insurance. It is a fact also that um, we don't have the, uh, enough primary care capacity for the universal system that we are building. By the way, that's a fact nationally. It's not a reason not to do it, it's a fact. In fact, the, I think that I'm right that the proportion of primary care physicians uh, per um, uh, person here is higher than in uh, other parts of the, uh, of the country. But those are facts. It's a fact that, um, that premiums are going up, but you know, premiums are not going to go down if we blow up health care reform. That's a, national, uh, that's a national problem. So we started something, um, uh, we launched something in Washington last week or the week uh, before called Oh, gracious. Protect Your Care, excuse me, the Protect Your Care campaign, um, which is a 501c3 and a 501c4. The 501c3 is a, an educational um, uh, initiative to talk about national health care reform. And the reason I got involved in it is because of our experience here in Massachusetts. It's, it's a model for national health care reform, so it's something that we have uh, a basis and experience to talk about. And the 501c4, these are the terms for you know, internal revenue service terms. The 501c4 is to do advocacy uh, as well. You need to know, if you don't already, Colleen, that the misinformation campaign is intentional. It's not, um, it's not by mistake. It's not that people are, are uh, unable to find out uh, the facts. We have our program here criticized because it is a national model, and as Dr. Blendon said, most of that criticism comes from people outside of Massachusetts, not people here in Massachusetts who are living with it and managing, uh, managing it and so forth. It's not that it's perfect, right? It's not that it's perfect, but it's, uh, um, it is a great big step forward for us. Hi, my Hi. name's Beth Wickler. Beth. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, I have a question. Um, I'm wondering if you can describe some of the challenges that you're facing as you implement these innovative cost reforms that you described. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also wondering if you can talk about some of the lessons that national policymakers might have or learn from your experiences from here. From us? Um, did you say Beth? Beth. So, uh, Beth, I think a couple of the challenges are um, probably ones that would be obvious to you. Uh, uncertainty um, in a world where we all crave certainty is a challenge. Um, it's, there's uncertainty in the insurance industry uh, about what is going to happen to the workforce. There's uncertainty in, uh, among uh, hospital um, providers about what it means for their own economic uh, model. Um, I think it's fair to say, um, Dr. Cohen, there's some uncertainty among the medical profession about whether their um, voice is going to be heard. And I think also about some of, some of your own, um, there are also legitimate economic concerns folks are, uh, are worried about. Um, that's okay. I mean, we'll, we'll work our way uh, through that. But I think those are some uh, big challenges. I was teasing earlier, um, I shouldn't repeat this, should I? Um, <laughs> now I have you all interested, don't I? <laughs> there's a, you know, we have, a, I mentioned in my talk that there's a, there's a growing consensus, uh, first of all, about the problem uh, and the scope of the problem and, its, um, and, its, and the threat it poses to our um, economies and our, uh, our social fabric and, and so forth of these rising uh, premiums. And I believe that there is a consensus that paying for a more integrated model of care, the, the quality of care rather than the quantity uh, of it, is something that in the medical um, field, folks think actually rewards the reason a lot of folks went to medical school. They wanted to take care of the whole person. They wanted to focus on the medicine and, uh, uh, and the care uh, rather than the, um, than the economics uh, of it. The, the volume or, pro or, or productivity uh, of it uh, alone. 
Um, and so when we have all these representatives from all these elements of, uh, of the health industry, or the health community, in the room, and we talk about moving to this, to these new models of uh, 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 for payment. Everybody says that's a great idea. We're there, and uh, and the the task forces, uh, the commission's recommendations were unanimous, and which was fabulous. Um, but the very first thing that I got after I got the unanimous recommendations now two and a half years ago was it two and a half years ago? I think I'm right. Was uh, not so fast, Governor. Take your time. Take five years. Um, we don't really have five years. Um, sometimes I think the folks who are in the room with me who say these are five fabulous ideas then leave the room and say, oh my God, my hair's on fire. I'm, you know, I got, we, got, we, have to, we can't do this too fast because we're in, in some ways, uncharted territory. But I think it is helpful for folks to know that a lot of these models are being tried right now without legislation. Not enough of them, because we need scale, and therefore I do believe we need the legis legislation, but a lot is being tried right now because we have gotten the community's attention on the fact that we mean to have a different set of outcomes than we have had. So lessons learned, um, again, it's about people sticking together. We do not have to have a perfect solution. We have to take a step and then stay together as we, uh, as we adjust. And I think we've been quite uh, sensible uh, about that and, uh, and successful in that in phase one. Okay. Nancy. Thank you for being here, Governor. Um, I want to ask you about a question of market power mm -hmm. um, among providers. Mm -hmm. um, many studies have shown that one of the major reasons for rising health insurance premiums um, is the growing market dominance and geographical dominance right. of certain providers. And as you know, our Attorney General last year issued a report that showed that that was a significant factor. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about what you think we need to do about that, particularly, as you said, you're a capitalist but not a market fundamentalist. fundamentalist. Right. Did everyone hear Nancy's question? Some of you didn't? Good. Good. So, <laughs> good. so so Nancy was asking about market power. And uh, one reference point is about uh, the Attorney General study from a couple of uh, years ago that uh, called attention to the, uh, um, uh, to, was it just the one provider? No, it's actually hospitals and physicians. Together. Yeah, just sort of showing widespread variations in payment. Right. Okay, okay. And so, so the concentration of, um, of hospital and physician groups and their ability to influence um, rates, and actually, I think in the report pointed out the disparities in in reimbursement um, as between the more powerful hospitals and doctor groups and the others for similar quality, uh, 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 the same procedures of similar uh, uh, quality. I get that. I don't think that um, that's the whole picture. But I do get that. I will tell you that when I started to think about market power, I mean, the, the, this, this experience of trying to work, trying to understand what's driving uh, healthcare costs for a, um, for a non-medical professional. But I mean, I, I, I listen well. I'm trying. Um, but for a couple years, we had all these luminaries around the table, the brightest lights. And I would say simply, how come in a recession we're seeing these, these kinds of uh, increases? And it would always start the same way. Everybody's answer would start the same way. Governor, it's complicated. <laughs> and then they would do this, right? The insurers point to the hospitals. They say it's because the rates of the hospitals, the costs of the hospitals are, are, are going up, and that's why your premium went up double digits, you know, you, then the hospitals say, well, no, we haven't seen any double digit increases in our reimbursements. It's not us, it's him. And then the, yeah, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the doctor practices. The doctor practices, it's not us, it's the imaging uh, 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 lab down the, down the street. Nobody takes any responsibility for it because it's complicated. Okay, we could spend the next two years peeling away all that complexity. I'm done. I'm not interested anymore. We're moving. 
Something has got to give because while we debate the complexity, the point is that the people paying those bills, those families, those small businesses, those cities and towns are seeing those premiums uh, go up. It's not sustainable. It's not because of health care reform. This is in, a, in, in, the bigger, uh, in the bigger market. Now, let me just say one other thing about market power. We figured out when we added up all of the people who, um, you know, between uh, Medicaid and, uh, and uh, state employees and prisoners and uh, people who get uh, uh, their health insurance subsidized through one of the programs at the Connector, that the state has a stake in whole or in part in something like 20 or 25 percent of the health insurance for people in the Commonwealth. And we thought, that's market power, right? And we're going to use it. So we have moved, um, and you, I mean, you know this, we've been moving uh, our own uh, healthcare purchases to accountable care integrated uh, settings as a way to move the market in that, uh, uh, in that um, direction. I think we can do this in a market framework, but the market needs parameters, and that's all the legislation is, that's all. Number four. Thank you, Governor, for coming nice, out. Nice to see you. Good to see you as well. Um, a lot of the questions I had were being answered, of course, we're buying numbers one, two, and three. Um, but you know, the use of the vocabulary market is always difficult when you're talking about healthcare, and it's certainly difficult right. for me as a primary care pediatrician right, right. to think market. Um, because actually, I had a conversation today mm -hmm. about numbers being down, Cambridge mm -hmm. Health Alliance, numbers being down. My, my, my difficulty with the, the marketing phrase is that, you know, we as consumers, we're now called we're consumers and right. we're customers yes. and we have to increase customer service, is do we have a plan to teach this kind of, uh, really, vocabulary, this type of thinking to medical students, residents, um, the like, to know how to engage in a conversation with our patients yeah. without really having conflict of interest. Yeah because no one wants to hear really about money and market and cost when their child is sick. But yet we use, those, we use that terminology. So I thought about customer service, I thought, think about consumer reports mm -hmm. <laughs> for healthcare. Yeah. Um, we buy a car, we have information about um, that purchase. If we're gonna use the jargon, mm -hmm. we need to figure out a way to train pediatricians, for example, to talk about how to choose certain procedures or not, yes. how to have conversations um, around that that is um, not deemed as trying to, you know, steal from, from, from really from your patients yes. um, in terms of their general health care. So talk to me a little bit how, how you've thought through that and how we teach consumers yeah. um, not to force us to practice defensive medicine yes. and things of that sort. What a great question. And I'm, there, there's, some, there's some layers in the question, uh, doctor, as, I'm, as I hear it. So I'm gonna, let me try to respond to a couple of those layers. First of all, I'm not, I know I have been using this language. I'm not sure it's the right language to use when it comes to, to healthcare. I actually don't think most people buy their healthcare or think about their healthcare as consumers, they're, they're thinking about their lives, they're thinking about their wellness, um, uh, their, their health security. Um, so I think it's, it, we use some of these uh, terms because we have a, a, a public-private model for expanding uh, access here, but not all the terms may actually serve us. So I'm not sure I'm, well, I'm ready to yield, I've been using it and I acknowledge that, but uh, I'm not sure I'm well ready to yield the, you know, consumers versus patients, family, child um, um, uh, language of, uh, 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 of healthcare. But clearly, I haven't settled on what that language ought, ought to be. Um, I think that the, on the, you should know in the bill, by the way, that we have uh, included some med-mal reform because we are trying to take the pressure off defensive medicine. And I think, I'm not persuaded, many, many practitioners are but there is, um, there, are some, uh, there is some evidence that um, defensive medicine contributes less than the sort of public rhetoric uh, to the cost of healthcare. But if it contributes something, let's see how we back that, uh, back that off. So what we have proposed 
um, I describe as the Michigan model. Basically, it's an apology and an early uh, resolution as distinct from the caps that they've tried in uh, Texas, I think, for example. But there's a MedMal uh, element here as well. I think that the, uh, um, I think transparency is also very important. I've always thought, you know, transparency is an important means. It's not a solution, but it's a means to the solution. And the reason I say I don't see it as a solution is, um, you know, I, I had my hip replaced um, two uh, years ago, I think it was. I feel great, by the way. Got fabulous care. Um, I have absolutely no idea what that costs. Um, and uh, had I known that, uh, um, you know, getting it done at the community hospital would have been just as great in terms of quality and, uh, and the experience of the surgeons and the whole uh, team um, at a half the cost, which you can find out, by the way, on our website. That's all out there now, right? Do you run the website or does Judy run the website? Judy does. Um, but what difference does it make if, if you pay a 50-buck copay in either place? It doesn't make any difference in my choices. Right? I want to know that the quality is comparable. Yes, I can find that out. But the, but the cost? So how you get this business of uh, you know, people having a personal stake in the choices they are, they are making um, is a very delicate uh, question, but it's something we've got we to gotta deal with. And I think some of that is going to be in the you know, the um, structure of plans and all that stuff. There's a, right now in the bill I signed last summer, insurers must offer at least one so-called limited network plan, which means that um, you, uh, the plan includes um, care at the lower cost community setting. And if you want to go um, to a downtown teaching uh, facility, then your uh, deductible is higher or your copay is higher or something like that. Uh, something like that, just so that there's another option uh, in there. But there's things like that I think we're going to have to play with and then uh, experiment with is what I, what I mean. Um, uh, and when I say we, I'm not talking about government, I mean we, you really in the, in the profession and the policymakers and so on. And then the last thing uh, that you touched on also in this space, I think, is consumer um, awareness and information. I've heard more doctors tell me that their patients are coming in complaining about this or that ailment and then naming the drug that they wish to be treated with because of what they saw on TV. Um, naming the drug, I couldn't tell you, hmm? And the dose? <laughs> and all the side effects that can come with it. Um, you know, that's, uh, it's marvelous that people are able to to do that, I suppose, but uh, if there is a lower cost alternative um, that is equally efficacious, then we're going to have to be in a place where you feel like you can do that without somebody coming around and saying, well, you know, I'm not getting uh, tip-top uh, tip -top care. Last thing I will say on this, and uh, again, a lot of these are impressions I'm getting from conversations. I am not a policy expert here. I'm listening really hard. Uh, to, uh, uh, to people, but the, uh, what I'm about to say to some extent I've experienced in my own life, and that's the whole end of life um, chapter. And, uh, and how to, we've been through this with my mother and Diane's mother, my wife's mother, um, and uh, with friends and, and so on, and the intensity, uh, and extraordinarily, um, wonderful uh, care, but those choices um, at the end of life and the family's capability and preparation uh, for those choices. I mean, I, when, when my mother had a combination of uh, hepatitis and uterine cancer at the same time, so each one made the other hard to treat and she was wasting rapidly. I think wasting was the term they, uh, uh, they used. Uh, and my mother's tough, tough person um, and really did not want to fight for a whole, uh, whole lot of reasons. But after we lost her, Diane and I looked at each other and said, we got to figure out how to do medical proxies or, you know, all that living wills, all that stuff to make sure that, she, fortunately, she was reasonably alert 
at the end and could respond to questions about whether you want this or, or, uh, or that. I, my best friend lost his dad um, uh, two weeks ago, a week ago, and, um, uh, and at the end, his father wasn't in a position to respond. And they're all struggling, you know, they, they're, they're not quite ready to let go. I mean, this is not new, you know this, this is a, but a whole lot of money gets spent at the, uh, at the end and a whole lot of emotion is invested then too. So how you sort that out, um, how do you prepare um, for that so that your wishes are, are known, I think is also a part of the sort of public education and sophistication that we're gonna have to struggle with. Great Hi. to see you. Hang on one second, Dr. Hi, my name is Laura. Yes. Thank you so much, Governor, for your open and frank conversation and discussion with us. Thank you. I had a quick question building on actually some of my classmates' questions. Mm -hmm. You mentioned how there's general or general consensus that you know the cost control needs to be implemented. But when push comes to shove, people have to make compromises. Um, I think the particular stakeholders I'm thinking of are providers and hospitals and insurance companies. And I'm just curious, um, what are the key points out of your discussions with these stakeholders? And what do you what see? What are the key? The key points, I guess, the highlights of your discussions with these stakeholders and sort of what do you see as the, the big political barriers to actually implementing cost yeah. cut? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you, you are building off an earlier question, um, and which I, uh, part of which I successfully dodged. So I will come back around. <laughs> One thing folks are very worried about is jobs, the medical Industry here is a very important uh, employer uh, and, uh, and important to our economy. And folks are worried about what it means in terms of jobs. Now, I think there are um, lots of reasons to be confident that there will be different kinds of jobs. There may be, there, there's gonna be some disruption. There's no doubt about that um, over time. I don't think it's gonna be profound at a, in a moment, but there's gonna be some uh, adjustment, but there are lots of other kinds of uh, jobs. You know, we need people who are actually going to go and check to see that folks are taking their meds and doing this and uh, and, uh, and and what have you. But they are different uh, jobs, so there's that uncertainty to be sure. Um, as one person um, uh, put it, you know, be careful that we don't um, kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. But you know what? If this is primarily about jobs, it's it's also about jobs, but if it's primarily about jobs, we're missing something. Because if we keep, uh, if we make it impossible for the 85% of our businesses that are small to add the one or two or three jobs that their commercial activity justifies because they cannot sustain their healthcare uh, uh, premiums, then we are holding ourselves back economically. So this is a, we're at a, uh, at a, transition uh, point, and I, when I say we here, I mean the nation is at a transition point. It's just that we here in Massachusetts are a little bit further ahead in, in confronting it, and that's a good thing. It's not a scary thing. Governor, it's not complicated. <laughs> uh, much of the cost that we talk about is avoidable. Mm -hmm the patient with a heart attack who's failed to take a daily aspirin, mm -hmm. the patient with HIV who has complications because of, of resistance to the drugs that he or she has taken in, inappropriately mm -hmm. or not at all. Mm -hmm. That problem has been dealt with in other countries. In Haiti, in Rwanda, mm -hmm. We almost never see a patient who has complications of HIV mm -hmm. because that, all of those patients who are cared for by my colleague Paul Farmer mm -hmm. and his colleagues mm -hmm. have community health workers who take responsibility. A patient really takes his or her medication every day mm -hmm because he or she is called upon every day mm -hmm. by a neighbor, mm -hmm. with a neighbor without much education, mm -hmm. who not only delivers the medication, but watches the patient take it. Mm -hmm. Our, my colleague, Dr. Heidi Befrus, mm -hmm. has used this approach to dealing first with patients in Boston, mm -hmm with HIV mm -hmm. 
and more recently, patients with other chronic illnesses, mm -hmm. heart disease, diabetes. My colleague, Dr. Sonia Shin, is encouraging the same approach with Native Americans in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. All of this really just to focus on the fact that our educational system, the system in which our patients are dealt with, requires a very serious examination and revision. Professional education system or across the board, you mean? I'm sorry? Professional education system or across the board? Both. Uh-huh. Both. Okay. Primary care, yes. as it's presently defined, mm -hmm. I think requires very careful examination and revision. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That is a better answer to Laura's, Laura's Laura, right? Laura's uh, question. When I talked about there being different kinds of jobs and the concern about existing jobs in the field being disrupted because of some changes, contractions maybe in the, uh, uh, in the industry. You think about the jobs shifting to those community healthcare worker types of jobs. I also think that there are great technology opportunities uh, uh, here. And you gotta know that in Massachusetts, we're gonna be using technology as a part of, uh, as a part of this solution. Thank you, Howard. Nice to see you. You good? Great. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.